We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Maybe we need a program where if you catch a coyote, you can get tax rebate. Here's Scott. Is he in the can? Is he in the can? Nice. 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 Uh, hey, Kurt, have you uh, done the intro yet? Oh, jeez, I forgot. Uh, where are you? I'm in the can. All right, there's enough said. It's And what better way to start off an all-request Friday on Hamilton today? Good afternoon. <laughs> Glad to have you here today. Uh, Pierre Polyever, leader of the Conservatives, will be on the show. Got a question? Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, as you know, these are usually very short. I try to cram in as much as I can, but uh, whatever I get the most of, I'll, um, I'll uh, group together. And for me, I'm going to be asking about unity. Uh, what are we doing? We know the politics. We know it. And you certainly know how I feel about the prime minister. And I'm sure he does, too. Um, but, uh, you know, some say that he's just as bad, Pierre Pauly ever, but on the other side and stoking the fires and creating this divisiveness, the extreme left, extreme right sort of thing. Uh, what is he going to do to unite the party? Hopefully um, we'll see that side. As opposed to the political side, which, of course, um, you know, they always come on and try to sell. All right. Now, oddly enough, Aaron O'Toole, who uh, was the last conservative leader, he's announced today that he is leaving uh, politics as of the spring. So that's kind of bizarre. All right. Um, just a- another tragedy, another tragedy. And, and this uh, involved uh, border crossing. And, you know, we talk about this and we seem to be buying the notion that all of the crossing is coming into Canada and that if we close a hole, it will shoot uh, the immigration or the problem somewhere down the border. Uh, and that was what people were asking as soon as uh, police uh, from Akawasasne saw and discovered six bodies that had act- people trying to cross the border. But no, not into Canada, from Canada into the United States. Nobody up here realizes that's a problem. Everybody decides, oh, look, Joe Biden comes to town and our hole in the border at Roxham Road is closed. Nothing to do with that. This is people going the other way with Canadian passports, apparently. These are these are people coming through Canada and going illegally into the United States, trying to buy their way in. That's why the hole was closed when Biden showed up, not to stop people from coming into Canada, but to stop people from coming into the United States, which for some reason we don't talk about. And instead, this was viewed as a win for Justin Trudeau. Joe Biden doesn't close a hole in the Canadian border. He's telling he's telling you to stop the stream that's coming the other way. So, again, I, I just can't believe that people are just buying this stuff. Uh, anyway, here's a report about this tragic story. Global News, uh, Braden Haynes on what has been happening along the shores of the St. Lawrence. 
We're getting a lot more light shed on this ongoing search operation that is happening here in Aquasasne, Quebec, on the water. Now, what we're also knowing is that police are searching for a missing person identified as Casey Oaks. He's a 30-year-old local resident who went missing Wednesday night. Now, those efforts searching for Casey Oaks actually led to the discovery of the six bodies in the St. Lawrence River. Now, those identified as five adults and one child. The identities were not given. However, police did give us more information on the fact that there are two families, one of Indian descent and as well as one of Romanian descent. The child, under three years old, was a Canadian citizen, a part of the Romanian family. And they also said that the search efforts are looking for a second child still reported missing in the waters. Now, the Aquasasne Mohawk Community Police Force have reason to believe the families were being smuggled into the U.S. and the United States. Now, this is a territory, just to give you an idea, that straddles Quebec, Ontario, and the New York state border. Now, local police said they have dozens of incidents of this nature of smuggling in the past year. However, they did also want to confirm that this has no connection between this and the closure of Rocks and Rome. We spoke to them earlier this morning. Take a listen. Right now, what I can tell you is this has nothing to do with that closure. That closure was people seeking refugee leaving the U.S. to Canada, these people were believed to be gaining entry into the U.S. It was completely opposite. This is an ongoing investigation. The local police forces, as well as the provincial police force from Quebec, the Sûreté de Quebec, as well as the OPP and the RCMP are all a part of these search efforts and this ongoing investigation. This is something that is continuing throughout the day. As for the bodies, they were being sent to Montreal for an autopsy as for a cause of death is still unknown. All right, uh, there you have it. Uh, that is uh, Braden Haynes, Global News, uh, talking about the tragic situation on the shores of the St. Lawrence River. And I want to reiterate that what Canadians do not seem to understand about the issues at our borders is it goes in both directions. And that's the reason why Biden said borders, borders, borders. It's not because people are coming into Canada. He don't care about that. It's the other way around. People are using Canada to get into the United States illegally. We got a problem. And the only way that reason, the only reason any of this was addressed, including the Roxham Road, was because the president said something. It's about people using Canada to get into the United States. Completely different situation, but all signs of a weak border. Uh, it is 3.15. More on this coming up as well. Uh, later on in the day, we have Pierre Polyever coming up. Huge news uh, this week when the Vatican announced it was rejecting the doctrine of discovery, which, oddly enough, they didn't when the Pope was here. And, uh, you know, there were steps taken towards truth and reconciliation. But this still uh, at the spine of, of the issues and, and, and the hurdles that we have to cross. Uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, this announcement uh, this week. Cody Grotes with his assistant professor of history and indigenous studies at Western University. Mohawk and a band member of Six Nations of the Grand his father, William, a survivor of the 60s scoop, and his grandparents, Stanley and Sarah, survivors of the Mohawk Institute Residential School. Cody is with us now. Cody, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Cody, from your perspective, what did that day mean to you when you heard that uh, the Vatican was rejecting this? What was your thought? I think it's really interesting because I think we're already seeing a bit of a change in tone from what we heard yesterday and what we heard today. The announcement from the Vatican really tried to stress that the doctrine of discovery was never actually 
a Catholic principle or a Catholic teaching. They mentioned how the concepts behind the Doctrine of Discovery were influenced by papal bulls or statements made by the popes. And I think that's really interesting that today the Vatican News Service, again, was reiterating that in their own press coverage of this announcement. They're trying to distance themselves from ever actually being at the core of this problem. So just being on your program today compared to what we were hearing yesterday, I think we're seeing a big difference. So as you were saying that, the first thing that came to mind, is this all about avoiding responsibility? So what are they doing? What did they say? So again, at the core of it, I think think it's good to have a little bit of an explanation of what the doctrine of discovery entails and how it relates to Canada. So the whole principle around this doctrine of discovery was that it was acceptable to colonize Indigenous lands because our forms of sovereignty, our forms of governance, were not inherently associated with Christianity. So that was sort of the underlying principle of this doctrine of discovery. And for the most part, it impacted Central and South America, so the Spanish empires, the Portuguese empires. And in a way, it began to influence colonial activities by the English and by the French in Canada and the United States. But again, what we're seeing is the Vatican saying that these principles were inspired, perhaps, by some Catholic teachings, but never explicitly stated by the Church. So, and again, when you were doing the introduction, uh, welcoming into your program, you mentioned again how this was never done when the Pope was here in Canada. And again, I think what we're seeing is there was perhaps a lot of public pressure applied to the Pope during his visit here. Uh, That was a, a tone and a message that we heard continually rescind the doctrine of discovery, denounce the doctrine of discovery. So again, I don't think that this was a proactive move by the Catholic Church as sort of a a sign of proactive reconciliation. I think in many ways it might have been pressured to do this. So this sounds more, Cody, like, uh, you know, we certainly disagree all of this happened, but we're not taking responsibility for it. It's not our fault. And you know what? When we look at the apology that was given by the Pope in Canada during the residential, or apologizing for the residential school system, we saw some very similar tones. The Pope apologized for some of the ideologies inherent in the residential school system, for the actions of some individual members of the Catholic faith who were operating residential schools, but they didn't take that full and final step and place accountability and blame on the actions of the Church. And again, one thing that I think is really interesting in this discussion is, as the Pope was leaving Canada after his tour here, on the plane ride home, he said that, in his opinion, the residential school system was an act of genocide. And that wasn't just an announcement that impacted Indigenous affairs in Canada. That had a ripple effect around the world in other instances where the Catholic Church was involved in colonial endeavors. And I think similarly, while this rescinding of the Doctrine of Discovery might be tied to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, this is going to have an impact with Indigenous nations around the entire world, especially Central America and South America, where we see this principle being more directly applied. Does this more have, Cody, does this have more to do with legalities and restitution than it, than it does with an apology or acknowledgement in, in, in truth and reconciliation? I'll be honest with you and think it's really symbolic more than anything, which almost makes the fact that they're trying to differentiate themselves a bit more problematic, because the Catholic Church does not have say over legal jurisdiction in Canada. They don't have say over property law, over Indigenous sovereignty. So what the base of this was, was really acknowledging that 
principles associated with these papal bulls laid the foundation for colonial endeavors. Them rescinding this doctrine is not going to change things that are happening on the ground in Canada. It's very symbolic in a lot of ways. So again, the fact that they are uh, pulling away a little bit from making that full statement, again, it can be called out a bit better, you know, more directly because because it really doesn't have much consequence practicality-wise. So does this make it better or worse, Cody? It's hard to say. I think it's a step one. I think what we saw is uh, before the Pope came to Canada, there was a delegation of Indigenous advocates and stakeholders and governance figures who went to the Vatican. We saw a first apology by the Pope, and uh, there was some workshopping of the language. So after that first apology, there was a lot of pushback about what he said or didn't say. And then he came to Canada and he gave a second apology, which was a bit more comprehensive. There were still things that he avoided saying in that second apology, but again, we did see it evolve the language. So maybe we'll see something similar in this, where they have rescinded this, but we're going to say there's more you need to do, there's more that you can say, and then we might see it in a few more weeks or months or years. But I don't think that this is the final step. Cody Grout with us, Assistant Professor, History and Indigenous Studies at Western University. Cody, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We have uh, spoken to Kelly Murphy before about her experience with multiple system atrophy. Uh, Kelly is my brother-in-law's sister. We've known each other since high school. And multiple system uh, atrophy is so rare that many the med- uh, many medical professionals will not even see a case during their career. It can take up to three years for a diagnosis. And awareness means uh, donations that can lead to research and hopefully find a cure at this time there is no cure for msa to talk more about all of this kelly murphy and her daughter jacqueline and they're with us now kelly and uh, jackie thanks for the time hope you're well we are how are you so far so good so uh, how has life changed for you kelly since we spoke last year uh everything my speech has changed and i'm using walker now um hmm. balance issues Counting on my family a lot more. And Jacqueline, for you, how have you been able to aid Kelly in going through this journey? Uh, We have all jumped in together as a family. We uh, were doing everything we can to raise some awareness. Um, I'm now on the board of Defeat MSA Canada um, and just trying to get the word out. Congratulations to you. I know this is a uh, month is a big month for MSA. Tell us what's been going on and uh, and what's coming up in Niagara. Yeah, so um, March is MSA Awareness Month. We kicked off with uh, the CN Tower lighting up purple for us on March 1st. And we are bringing our campaign to an end here in Niagara Falls. Uh, it's lighting up purple. Uh, the falls are lighting up purple tonight at 10 p.m., and we have a free fitness uh, exercise because our, our campaign is Move for MSA, Move for Those Who Can't. So tonight at 7 o'clock, we have a, a free fitness to to wrap up the campaign. And either one can jump in and answer this. Uh, do we know anything more about uh, multiple system atrophy? And I'll try to say it as many times as I can. Um, do we know anything more about multiple system atrophy than now than we did last year or in, in previous years? How much are we are we are we gaining on this? Um, well, 
pretty much the same except now I'm in a cl clinical trial in Detroit. I have to travel to the U.S. to get some medications to see if it slows the process down. And that's really what it is at this point, is just trying to live with it and, and trying to continue on as best you can. Yeah, and research and trying, even if it doesn't help me, it helps future generations. That being said, have you talked to other people, other families that are going through the same thing as your family is going through and and, and shared similar stories? What do they say? Well, I have a uh, Facebook page about my journey, and I have a couple that reached out to me from Florida, Pensacola, and they've actually come to Niagara Falls this weekend to take part in the MSA awareness. I just met them for the first time today. And are, are people discovering this as they're following your journey? Because I'm guessing there's some that probably aren't, you know, aren't aware of it as you are and are just in learning from you from what you're going through. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of people are reaching out on uh, Kelly's Facebook page, talking about symptoms, asking if, you know, this is how her her uh, story started. Uh, a lot of people, again, are, are saying they're diagnosed with Parkinson's, but just it doesn't seem like Parkinson's. There's something else there. Um, it's that running around from specialist to specialist trying to figure out. It's almost like a puzzle and you, you've got all these pieces, but you can't figure out how to put it together. And that's that's definitely the the issue with MSA. And I remember that was a long journey for you guys too, trying to figure out exactly what this was all about. What what were some of those early symptoms? How do we make uh, people more aware of, of multiple system atrophy and 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 what the systems are? And you said it often gets confused with Parkinson's. What is the experience? Uh, started off with uh, low blood pressure, um, balance. Uh, uh, acting on my dreams. It it, uh, it takes over your autonomic nervous system. So everything we take for granted um, that our body just does on its own, like uh, regulating our temperature, our bladder, our, uh, like my mom said, the blood pressure, heart rate, breathing, all the digestion, like all those things that um, we take for granted, um, MSA seems to affect that on top of the, the mobility issues. And uh, as you guys, I remember you, you, you both talking about this last year, that uh, there was a, a long period of time before accurately getting diagnosed. Are we getting any better at that? Uh, just to obviously some of the awareness that you guys and other people have, caught, have, uh, have stirred. Uh, are, are we more able to identify this now? I would like to think that um, we're reaching out to the general public and the general public is starting to ask those questions when they go into the doctor's office. Um, but we just, we definitely have a long way to go still. And you were talking about, and maybe elaborate on this, about it being confused with other illnesses that, you know, if you come in with certain symptoms, you just kind of are sent down a different, uh, you know, an avenue that, uh, that, that sort of describes what you're going through. But it is often confused with other illnesses. Is that accurate? Yes, and also I was told I'm just getting old. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we can use that for everything, can't we, Kelly? You know what the heck? Yeah, I use that. I use that all the time. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I interrupted. So, yeah, I mean, it, it must have been very frustrating in those early stages, just trying to figure out exactly what it was. 
Yeah, first it was um, uh, what's vertigo and oh, vertigo sins. Yeah, like all all kinds of things. Because honestly, a lot of doctors don't even know what multiple system atrophy is. So how do you diagnose someone with that when you don't know that it is a disease? Do, do you know how? And maybe this I'm getting too detailed here, but do we know how long this has been around? Do we how long people have been aware of multiple system atrophy? Um, it used to be called shy dragger. Right. But, and then they changed to multiple system atrophy. So it's been around quite a long time. Just, I think more and more people are recognizing it as MSA instead of Parkinson's. Yeah, they're getting more defined in how they how they uh, diagnose this stuff. So there's no c- treatment or cure at this time. Have a, is there any sort of idea, any sort of inkling as what causes multiple system atrophy? They don't know what they're wondering if it's pesticide environment. It's not mm. generic. It's due to a buildup of protein in the brain. And we're just mm-hmm. trying to figure out why that protein is building up in some people. So Niagara Falls this weekend, as you wind up the month, are you confident you've, you've reached your goals in, in over the last month and getting the word out about uh, MSA? Yeah, every day we post on our social media um, a movement, whether it's somebody just going for a walk, whether it's an exercise that someone with MSA can do, just trying to get it out there and ask people to share that. And I, and I do think we are, we are seeing the, the numbers on social media go up. So that's fantastic. And when, once again, uh, the logistics about the Niagara Falls thing this weekend? Yeah, 7 p.m. it starts. Um, 6.45 is registration. We're at the Embassy Suites in Niagara, Salon C. Um, and down at the falls at 10 p.m. tonight, it'll be lit up purple for our uh, MSA angels and our MSA warriors. Well, good luck and congratulations to both of you. And my goodness, uh, the way you have grabbed this and become uh, advocates for it is uh, is just absolutely incredible. And I'm sure there's many more families out there that are better off today because of the messaging that uh, the both of you have got out. Uh, Kelly Murphy and daughter Jacqueline, Niagara Falls tonight, 7.30. And the disease is multiple system atrophy. Look it up, find out more about it. Uh, Jacqueline and Kelly, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank Thank you. you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Did you play Catch the Ace? Were you drawn in? Uh, I'm not sure there was too many in the Hagersville area that weren't. Uh, this is the, uh, there finally was a winner in week number 45 of Catch the Ace, the draw in Hagersville, Ontario with the Lions Club. The record progressive jackpot of $1.8 million won by Richard Marshall after winning the $200,000. That'd be cool right there. Uh, weekly draw and selecting envelope number 51, which had the ace of spades. Joining us to talk more about all of this, Rob Phillips, president of the Hagersville Chamber of Commerce and chair of Hagersville Rocks, partner with the Lions Club in the raffle and with us now. Rob, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, absolutely. Scott, how are you doing today? Good. Are you glad it's over, Rob? You know what? It's it's one of these things that is probably 75% glad that it's over, but 25% wishes it could have carried on and raised even more money for our charities in the community. And that is amazing. So talk about that and how this is divided up and what it does for the charities. So 
with the catch the ace lottery, 50% of the money gets paid out in the prizes, but the other 50% net of the expenses of the event get distributed to the, the charitable causes that are chosen. As a partner, Hegerson Rocks decided that our 50% of the charitable portion, so half of over $3 million, will be going to the West Haldeman Hospital and Healthcare Foundation. The Lions, their share will be split between the Hegerson Food Bank and numerous community causes that the Lions support on a regular basis and many new ones that will be added to their list with this phenomenal amount of money. Uh, how do you top this, Rob? How do you start another one? I mean, but I guess in a sense, this drives the ticket sales for the next one. It does. You know, it, it's one of these things that in our community, I think we need to sit back, regroup, decide what to, to do going forward. But there are already neighboring communities in Haldeman County that are either considering or already applied for a license that I think it's it's going to be upon us to help support them, let them grow perhaps to the same size that we did. So uh, how, how, how big is this prize com- compared to where you're normally drawing money in? You're saying that other areas want to jump on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's like I remember the uh, Rib Fest. As soon as they started doing well, everybody was jumping on Rib Fest. Is everybody going to be doing a Catch the Ace now? Well, I'm sure they will. I mean, one of the ones we've heard is the Fisherville Lions Club, which is about 15 minutes away from us. But, you know, Will we ever in our area achieve this kind of number again? I don't know. I mean, this was phase, this was round two. In round one, it went 20 weeks. The jackpot was $9,734. Here <laughs> we go 45 weeks and the jackpot was $1,831,000. So, you know, the chance we could get all geared up and the ace gets drawn right in the first week the next time around. That's just the chance you, you run with this. Can this get too big for the Hagersville Chamber of Commerce and all the like? Can this just get out of hand? Like, oh man, we gotta get bring someone in to manage this. You know, it it was getting on the brink of that, and and two weeks ago we recognized the impact that these crowds were having on our downtown core and on our businesses. So our event organizer Tanya Ribbing, you know, organized got together with the county, EMS, police, the Lions every stakeholder, and we said, what can we do? So we rerouted the the lineup back through the residential streets, back towards the arena. It it opened up our downtown core. It let our businesses breathe. But yeah, we were, even last night, you know, we opened the doors at nine o'clock yesterday morning, and we were fearful that we weren't going to get all the people in the lineup through to buy a ticket. And I think we made it by less than five minutes, getting everybody through the door and getting a ticket in their hand that wanted to buy So what was it like when all of this comes to a head? What was that like? Oh, you know, first of all, it was complete chaos, getting everything wrapped up and done. And then the just the pandemonium when when Lion Dan pulled the the ace of spades out after, well, this was week 45. And there was just huge excitement throughout the crowd. And then to find out that it was a local winner, a resident of Nanticoke right here in Haldeman County was was icing on the cake to know that not only did the charitable portion stay in our community, but the winners right here in the community and much of his family live in Haldeman County as well. On that note, Rob, we've only got a few seconds left. How much, uh, if you look back at your your total ticket sales, how much from in Haldeman, how much from outside the area? You know, that we we haven't really got a handle on because we, we don't have addresses. All I know is there were buses coming in from out of town. There were people from... <laughs> 
family members from all across the province having the locals buy tickets because the tickets had to be bought in person. But yeah. we we certainly got this small town of three thousand people on the map, and it was it was on you know CBC National News last night. Ian Hannah Mansing talking about it, so. We got right across the country with this event, which was just amazing. Well, Rob, congratulations. I think it was a success. Good luck with next year's Rod. Uh, Rob Phillips with us, president of the Hagersville Chamber of Commerce and chair of Hagersville Rocks, partner with the Lions Club in, of course, the Catch the Ace raffle. A winner has been crowned 1.8 million Richard Marshall. Rob, good luck. Congratulations with next year's event. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. Former conservative leader uh, Aaron O'Toole is uh, leaving politics. He's uh, he's going to, uh, that's it for him as of uh, this spring. Peter Graff is with us now, professor of political science, McMaster University, and with us here. Peter, how are you today? Hope you're well. I'm great, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So, thank you, Peter. So, your thoughts on this? Surprised that Aaron O'Toole is leaving. Well, I mean, I'm surprised in the sense that uh, there hadn't been, you know, rumors uh, ahead of this announcement and perhaps some decision not to, you know, fill out the rest of uh, this term. But maybe not surprised in the sense that, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole has been there over a decade now. He doesn't seem that central in terms of the, the plans of the current leader. And so even in a situation where the Conservatives would become the next government, it's not clear that he would have that central or important a role. You know, so given that uh, at his age and stage of career, it maybe makes sense to, to think about, you know, what you could be doing in the world of law that he left to, to get into politics. You know, could you make more money? Uh, could you have more challenging projects? Could you try new things? And I think there's all reasons why uh, it's not surprising that he decides to move on at this stage. Uh, many thought he was the more moderate leader in the Conservatives, more a centrist. Will that be missed? Uh, well, I guess it depends if you're a centrist conservative or not. Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, I think he'll be remembered as someone who uh, became the leader of the Conservative Party by riding the back of the tiger, uh, you know, of, of taking a position as a, sort of the true blue conservative, which in, in this instance meant really running to the, the right of the party. And upon becoming leader, uh, trying to make the Conservative Party into a much more centrist challenger of the Liberals. And, and ultimately, he he failed because he couldn't bring his party with him. He ended up in the mouth of the tiger he was riding. Um, hmm. You know, does that mean there's not a space for that centrism? I, I guess we will see in this uh, coming election. Uh, it doesn't seem that that's a way that the Conservative Party is going to be... Uh, uh, you know, running in that election, you know, will they have success, more success running uh, further to the right this time than they did last time? They're certainly facing a much weaker Liberal Party in doing so. Um, you know, so that that will be, I guess, you know, the question strategically. But I think Canadians probably do miss having a party that would fill a space that is uh, able to engage what the Liberals are proposing and, and point out, you know, the problems with it and, and point out alternatives to it. Uh, you know, I think what we're getting at the moment with the Conservatives is much more uh, an attempt to counter the government with uh, things that are good at, at fundraising. I mean, we can look at this recent debate over Bill C-11, uh, you know, which, again, there's uh, many reasons to criticize what the, the Trudeau government is doing in terms of regulating tech giants. Uh, but to claim that this is about Trudeau trying to censor, censor you or to, uh, you know, engage in uh, the the ability to take over and invade your privacy seems to be uh, a good fundraising tactic, but probably isn't really advancing the debate of how do we as Canadians 
engage and regulate uh, these tech giants. So that's maybe what we're missing with uh, the departure of people like Aaron O'Toole, uh, the ability of conservatives to bring conservative values to bear uh, in a close debate over policy, rather than in, in really trying to whip up uh, the base of a party for fundraising uh, purposes. Uh, this is a completely unfair question to ask. And obviously, as you mentioned, we have a far weaker Liberal Party here than when Aaron O'Toole ran. But do you think Aaron O'Toole has most has more mass appeal than Pierre Polyevra does? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly he didn't light the, the world on fire when he when he was running uh, as leader, although he did try some you know new things like trying to make the you know the conservatives more of a, a union friendly party or to you know attract those voters but you know that didn't you know necessarily uh, pay off uh, i mean i think we'll really have to see how polyevra does on the campaign trail i mean if we're looking at things like press conferences it certainly seems like o'toole is better able was better able to to manage them um you know and, and came off as someone who would be willing to answer questions in the way that polyevra maybe hasn't to the same extent but uh, you know, O'Toole, I don't think he really managed to, to reach Canadians in the time that he was leader. You know, the question is, if he had had another few years, would they have got to know him and warm to him? It's possible. Um, with Pierre Poilievre, I think Canadians are beginning to get a better sense of, of who he is. But even in that case, I suspect most Canadians haven't really formed a very strong uh, opinion of him. And so we'll see if he has more more success than an O'Toole. But Again, he, he probably has to do less to get Canadians to like him at this stage because the government is going to be another three or four years mm -hmm. older by the next time we go to the polls. And when governments hang around, uh, they find it harder to convince people to, to keep reelecting them. Uh, latest Nano's poll out has Pierre Polyevra ahead as uh, the best leader. Surprise there, or like you said, people, is this going to be about change or the next candidate? Uh, I suspect it will be more about uh, change than the actual candidates in this case. Uh, you know, I mean, given how unpopular Trudeau is, I'm not really that surprised that Polyevra, uh, you know, runs first. Uh, I mean, similarly, people who support a party tend to say they like the leader. And, you know, that can explain why, you know, the largest opposition party is going to do better than uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP in, in that kind of poll. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not too surprised given, uh, you know, how unpopular Trudeau is. And of course, uh, you know, really any Canadian prime minister uh, after that many years in power is it's not going to be uh, popular and people will look to the opposition uh, leaders as, as more favorably than they would at, at another time. In the last week or so, uh, we've only got a few seconds left. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talking more about being prime minister. We've got this far. I want to take it the rest of the way. Does that say anything or is that grandstanding considering where he is with the deal with the Liberals? I think he sees that a lot of people who supported the Liberals in 2015 see that it's the end of the line for, for the Liberals. And so where do they go? Is it time to go back to the Conservatives? Or is it? Uh, do you look at Jagmeet Singh as a person who might move some of those uh, hopes from 2015 forward? And so I think he's counting on the collapse of the Liberals uh, and hopes to pick up a significant share of the people who voted for Trudeau and his message of hope well, way back in 2015. Peter Grant with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Pierre Polyevra is joining as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, Ontario, and perhaps the next Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Polyevra. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Definitely the next Prime Minister of Canada. We need some common sense <laughs> in this country. 
All right. Uh, before we get to budgets and all that sort of thing, um, certainly anyone who listens to this show knows where I stand with this prime minister. And I want to say I voted for all three political parties. Stop laughing, please. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm, um, I'll leave it at that. Um, but he has, in my lifetime, proved to be the most divisive prime minister uh, of my time, I believe, uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's um, uh, uh, gender, whether it's uh, vaccination. Uh, we don't seem to find the victory. We find the divisiveness. And others are saying that you're the same, but just from the opposite side of the political uh, spectrum and that this in a time where people want change is your election to lose what are you doing to unite canadians and get us out of this fight and working as one standing for the common sense of the common people united for our common home canada and what does that mean well we need to bring home lower cost inflation is at a 40-year high after eight years of trudeau his carbon taxes, his inflationary deficits, he's doubled the national debt, adding more debt than all prime ministers prior combined. Uh, I'm going to uh, cap spending, cut waste, so that we can eliminate the inflationary deficits and carbon taxes and bring home lower costs, bring home powerful paychecks. And the hammer is a town full of working people, but there's a war on work. You earn an extra buck and you get it chewed up by taxes, inflation, and clawbacks enough. I'm going to overhaul and reform taxes so that people bring home more of each dollar they earn and hard work pays off. And we're going to bring homes people can afford. I think one of the reasons why there's so much mental health problems and despair and crime is that if you can't afford a home and you're 32 years old in mom's basement. You've got no hope. You've got no, you feel like you have no future. And that's because we don't have enough homes. We have the fewest homes per capita in the G7. I want to remove the government gatekeepers to speed up and lower the cost of building permits to add millions of new homes our working kids can afford. Uh, that's just common sense, but we have to bring it home. Uh, it seems that build is a bad word in Canada now. It, and I don't know whether that's, you know, to try to densify or whatever, but it just seems in the last 10, 20, 30 years, we've fallen behind. Why is build becoming a bad word or why was it a bad word? Well, we've become a nation of gatekeepers. We're now ranked 64th in the world for the time it takes to get a building permit for anything, a factory, a mine, or just a house. And so Canada now has the fewest houses per capita of any G7 country, even though we have the most land to live on, to, to, to build on. You know that a house, the average house in America is 45% cheaper than here in Canada. They have 10 times the population to house on a smaller land mass. It should be way cheaper here. But the reason we have among the world's most expensive real estate is you can't get anything built. So here's my solution. I'm going to link the number of dollars that big cities get from the federal government for infrastructure to the number of houses they allow to be built. Those that speed up and lower the cost of building permits will get a building bonus from my government. And those that gatekeep and block building will get their infrastructure money clawed back. That will be a powerful incentive for city bureaucrats and politicians to get out of the way. I'm going to require every federally funded transit station have high-density apartments around and above so seniors and youth can live next to the bus and train. I'm going to sell off 6,000 federal buildings to turn them into houses. Uh, in other words, we're going to unleash construction like we've never seen before, build millions of new homes, and we're going to bring home ownership back to our young people. 
Uh, some critics have said that you know you you have or your party has no climate change plan. How do you address that? In in how is is not a viable option to use Canadian liquid natural gas to get at least the world off coal? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that there is the solution on climate change. The Liberal NDP approach is to hit people with high taxes to drive up the cost of traditional energies that we still need. In fact, at midnight tonight. The NDP Liberal carbon tax goes up again. So you're going to get hit at the pumps. Tomorrow is April Fool's Day, and the joke is on everybody who uses gas, heat, or groceries in this country. Instead of bringing up the cost of traditional energy, let's bring down the cost of low-carbon alternatives, like um, liquefying our natural gas. We have the fifth biggest supply on Earth. There were 15 proposals for export terminals on Trudeau's desk when he took office. Zero have been built. They built seven in the same time in the United States. The Germans built an import facility in 194 days. We could be the one selling that clean gas, which replaces dirty coal and reduces global emissions. We could also send it eastward to Europe so to break European dependence on Putin and turn dollars for dictators into paychecks for our people. But we have to speed up the approval of these projects, and that's exactly what I'll do. But not just gas. We have the fifth biggest supply of lithium, which you need for electric car batteries. But we don't we don't mine the stuff. Why? It takes 25 years to get a mine approved in Canada. So I'll speed that up so that we can safely approve mines in a year and a half rather than two, two and a half decades. And that way we can mine the lithium using clean energy here and, and build the supply chains for electric cars in the future right here on Canada's soil. Let's bring home our jobs, bring home our paychecks and bring home clean industry in Canada. Uh, what do you say to Canadians who are scared of you? You're the boogeyman. You're an extreme right wingist. You're a Donald Trumper. You're that. How do you how do you answer that? Well, Justin Trudeau will fear monger. That's what he does. As you said, he divides to distract from the suffering people have experienced after eight years in, in office. But what I'm proposing is common sense. So uh, let's go through it. Bring home lower costs by eliminating the inflationary deficits and carbon taxes. Bring home powerful paychecks by lowering taxes to reward hard work. Bring homes people can afford by speeding up construction. Bring home safe streets with jail, not bail. Jail, not bail for repeat violent offenders. Also by reversing the decriminalization of heroin, crack, and other drugs. And instead investing in rehabilitation and treatment for our addicts. Uh, and suing the big pharma companies to pay for it. They caused the crisis with their opioids. They should pay the price to fix it. And, and finally, bring home our freedom. Let people speak freely, make their own decisions about their own bodies. These are common-sense ideas, bringing home lower costs, powerful paychecks, more homes, uh, safer streets, and more freedom. That's common sense. That's the Canadian way, and that's what I'll deliver. All right, last question. Uh, many say they don't know you. What do you want Canadians to know about Pierre Polyevra? My story's not a lot different than theirs. I was born to a 16-year-old unwed mother who just lost her own mom, so she put me up for adoption to two school teachers. They always taught me, though, that it didn't matter where I came from. It mattered where I was going. It didn't matter who I knew, but what I could do. And that's the country my wife came to as a refugee from Venezuela, it's the country that we want our kids and yours to inherit. A country where it doesn't matter if your name is Martin or Mohammed Singh or Smith, Polyev or Patel, Chong or Charles, as long as you're prepared to work hard, you should have the chance, you should have a shot 
had a good house, a good living, and a great life. That's common sense. I think it's time to bring it home. Pierre Pauly Everett with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, Ontario. Pierre, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great to be with you. Have a great weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about this for it seems like 100 years, uh, but the Rogers-Shaw deal looks like it is getting the go-ahead to talk more about all of this. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I, I guess no surprises for uh, for you. You always thought this would eventually make its way through. Is this a better world for Canadians and our cell phone service? Ah, that is the $64 billion question. So in essence, what the minister did today, this is Minister Champagne, who had to give the final approval on it, has said his we're losing a competitor and we're gaining a competitor. Now we're losing Shaw as the two of them merge, but emerging from the merger is Videotron, really a Quebec-only company that has agreed to expand its footprint into non-traditional places. They're going to, for instance, they're going to be in Manitoba, they're going to be in Ontario. And as they come to these, what the minister has ordered is that they offer really good prices into those markets. Why? Well, of course, if Videotron enters those markets with good prices, that will try, try to put some pressure on Bell, Telus, and Rogers to keep up. Um, and so he's saying, look, I've got all these guarantees. I've got all these restrictions. You see, we're protecting you, and I think he is protecting you to some extent. But in terms of competition, we gain one, we lose one. It's not a better market than it was before. When will we know what the fallout of this is, like in a year from now, two years from now? Um, because this is a pretty big merger, and there's been lots of chat about it, and if this is the way to go, we'll know in a year or so what the fallout is. Will we not? Yeah, I would think so. So in this year now, now that the approvals have come through, we're a, or a quarter of the way through this year, March 31st, it will now take those companies uh, a couple more months, maybe even six more months, to make all this happen. Excuse me, I expect that there might be some layoffs as a result of this. In other words, you don't need two accounting departments. So there'll be some middle managers that'll be terminated probably two or three months from now. But to see whether it's, it's good for the average Canadian in terms of prices or coverage or the kinds of services you're offered, we'll probably be at least a year, year to a year and a half. Some point in 2024, we can do a postmortem on this. Usually when these sorts of things happen or there's bandwidth that gets opened up or what have you, they try to introduce a new player. And really, we haven't done this here other than giving a Quebec company a national footprint. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate, except that this Videotron, uh, uh, if you are a Quebec resident, you have quite liked them. How they've even been able to get a beachhead is that they offer more or less the equivalent service of the big guys, but they do it at a much cheaper price. And so what the federal government has said is we want you to bring those kinds of deals to markets that have not seen them. And by the way, Videotron, if you think this is just a momentary thing, you've got to stay in this market for at least 10 years. You can't be selling this bandwidth to a third party, just buy it and flip it like a homeowner might. Um, and also we expect you to be offering 5G state-of-the-art services that may mean you're going to have to invest in construction, those sorts of things. So these are the restrictions the government's put on it. And so far, Videotron has said we're up for this. So clearly, here's a company that wants to emerge out of the shadows 
to take a much more significant natural, national role. Now, they're going to have to build awareness that doesn't fall trippingly off the tongue the way Bell, Rogers, and Tellus does. So that's a challenge for them, but they seem to be up for it. Yeah, I'm sure as soon as the word gets out that it's as cheap as what you're saying it is, that will uh, that will uh, work well for them. That being said, can they do and replicate what they have in Quebec uh, across the country? And if they can, why can't the others? Right. Well, so I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to phrase it across the country. Uh, so, for instance, the Shaw platform is going to remain in Alberta and British Columbia. Right. Uh, they're not quite giving that up. So Rogers is inheriting that part of the platform. The other part of it is what's going to Videotron. So it's really it'll become more of a regional player rather than a national player. But you're correct. If one company can do it, why can't the others? And I think that's a question we should be asking as consumers rather than just shrugging our shoulders and saying, I have to pay what I have to pay, why aren't we demanding a little more? And I think one of the reasons why in the America, in the United States, excuse me, or in parts of Europe, we see better deals on cell phones is consumers there are more demanding. There is something Canadian about us saying, well, I guess that's the way it is. We'll just take it rather than pushing back and saying, no, I demand more for my dollars or I actually demand paying less dollars for the same service. I'm hoping this may trigger some of that competitive juices, but no guarantee. And look, there are lots of critics today who are saying, yeah, you're wishful, you're dreaming, it's not going to happen, we've lost a major competitor, we're gaining a smaller one, don't, don't hold your breath. So I, I'm not sure which way it's going to go, only time will tell. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, Rogers Communication, and Shaw, the deal approved, and we'll wait to see what happens. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. I will. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we were followed this story, then we realized we're getting sucked in, so we're going to actually wait until something happened. <laughs> now it has. Uh, a grand jury in New York City has voted, has voted to indict former President Donald Trump, uh, who is still at this point running for president for 2024. Uh, the charges haven't been made public as yet, and uh, this is all regarding falsifying business records in connection with hush money uh, paid to Stormy Dan. All right. To talk more about this, Brian J. Caram, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of the book Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, my brother. How about you? <laughs> Good. You know, again, here we go, and we're going to ask you for an update in a sec, but I'm asking you how this is going to be interpreted, because, again, I, you know, I'm no fan of Trump. He's he's just a divisive man, uh, politics and all of that aside. Uh, that being said, taking down a president for hush money to a porn star, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is JFK. I mean, if he was around now, where would these stories be? I mean, come on. So is this just the first domino of many to fall? And why would they, and I guess it's just, you know, obviously, chronologically, this one came first. But if this was something like election interference or something, one of the other charges allegedly against him that, that, that are quite serious, would that have been a better way to start off than, okay, let's start with a porn star charge? Well, I think this is um, the opening jab. Look, if you're playing chess, I would describe it as check. It's not right. checkmate. It's driving the king into the corner to get him. If you're uh, I, I play chess, but I was also a boxer. So I'll look at it this way. It's a it's an opening jab. The body blow will probably be the Mar-a-Lago um, indictment. Then after that, you're going to get an uppercut with uh, 
uh, Georgia, and then you're going to end up with a haymaker when it comes to January 6th. It's all part of a, a, a long look. I'll put it this way. Donald Trump is going to be in court on civil and criminal charges for the rest of his natural life, even if he lives to be the 200 years that Dr. Ronnie Cox predicted he would live to be. He's not uh, going to. This is just the beginning. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you're on whatever side uh, you, you're, you know, whatever team you're going to pick or such. But the fact that this seems to be such a frivolous charge, even though, I mean, obviously, the, you, you well, we don't know what the charge is, record. honestly. Scott. I mean, we, yeah. we don't. It, it, there's it's a 34 count indictment. We understand that it probably has something to do with Stormy Doinkles or and, and it made Karen McDougal. And but it's also about uh, business decisions he made before he was president. And we really can't comment on what we don't know about. And, yeah. you know, we, we can assume by who some of the witnesses were. But with a 34 count indictment, it's not just about Stormy Daniels. Um, when will we see more of the of legal action regarding some of his other allegations and specifically January 6th? When will that other real serious stuff come to play? Do we know? I, I think that uh, sooner rather than I, like I said, this is the opening round. And I think uh, Donald Trump is reeling from it. He was kind of surprised, although he says he was surprised. But I don't believe that because. Last week, he said he was going to be indicted. So he kind of knew this stuff was coming. Um, I believe nothing that Donald Trump says. I think he um, will know more probably in a month or two in um, the Mar-a-Lago case, the Georgia case, probably by the fall and maybe January 6th next year. Um, that's the hardest case. That's the toughest case. And remember, they've got to get some testimony from Mike Pence and from um, uh, Matthews as well. So once they get uh, those people under, uh, once they interview them, then we'll know a little bit more. But right now, it's like I said, this is, we don't know what this is. It's a, it, from what it was first described, we thought it was a misdemeanor, but um, now it may be a felony. But uh, the Mar-a-Lago case seems to be falling into place the quickest, and that's the one I would look for next. Uh, how do, And we've asked this question a million times. How is the Republican Party reacting to this, specifically DeSantis in Florida? Does this help him? Does it hurt his cause? Well, right now, most major, I mean, you saw, uh, I don't know if you saw, but Lindsey Graham was crying today on yeah. uh, Fox, boo-hoo-hoo, yeah. and saying if uh, Donald Trump walked in and beat up a cop and smashed a window, he'd go free. Uh, so, you know, at least he's handling it responsibly, right? Um, wow. I think you're going to see that the Republicans right now are still huddled, huddled around him. You have to remember what it was that Bill Barr did. Bill Barr abandoned him after January 6th. He saw the writing on the wall. Eventually, that's what will happen with all the Republicans. Does it benefit DeSantis? I don't know. DeSantis has all the appeal of roadkill, but that's <laughs> not to say that he won't garner some support. He certainly has, has pitched his support to the MAGA uh, end of the Republican Party by saying he won't extradite Trump, which is kind of funny since Trump already said he was going to go in. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know that the Republicans at the end of the day, when they see that he's definitely getting flushed down the toilet and the more that the more indictments come, the more that the uh, Republicans will back away from him. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com uh, and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, my brother. Have a fantastic one. 
All right. Uh, yesterday, scathing report came out of Nova Scotia, the MCC report there in regard to, of course, uh, 22 people dead over 13 hours uh, when a person imitating an RCMP officer uh, started their rampage. And this report heavily criticizing the RCMP, uh, who, of course, have had no shortage of criticism over the last little while. Will that mean changes moving forward? Let's bring in Michael Kempa, Associate Professor, Faculty of Social Sciences, Criminology focused on the politics of security, public safety, and policing at the University of Ottawa. And with us now, Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Very well. Thank you. Uh, Obviously, uh, the RCMP heavily criticized in this report. What are your thoughts uh, on the release of this report report and what it says? What comes to mind? Well, I poured through the 3,000 pages as quickly as I could. And what jumps out is these are all very sensible recommendations that we've seen before in a series of dozens of reviews into the RCMP. What's different about this report is they put it all together in a single report. It is so broad and comprehensive. I'm very impressed. It's very sensible. It will get the job done if we implement it. Uh, there's the key right there. If we implement it, you have said, you just said, you've seen several of these suggestions before. Are you worried this gets put on the shelf with the rest? Yes. And in fact, so were the authors of the mass casualty report. They've gone through it. They said there's been more than 50 of these reviews. What has to be different this time is that we act on it. And they've put in place a little bit of an accountability framework for making sure that the government reports on which of their recommendations they are going to implement and if they set any aside to explain to people why they are setting them aside. I'll say it's going to be very difficult for the government. There's very little political reward in terms of major urban center votes for tinkering around with the RCMP. Doesn't get you votes in the GTA, doesn't get you votes in the greater Montreal area Hmm. uh, that helps you form government. RCMP issues are most of the geography of Canada, but it is smaller cities and rural areas. So it takes vision and it takes guts to get into this area of reform. Uh, Whose uh, job is it to check those boxes and make sure that this doesn't end up on the shelf? Are you confident? Um, Is there someone who's going to be following along and, and, and perhaps even a timeline for this? Well, there are some timelines mentioned in the report. And what I like about the report is they're very frank in saying the police... No police agency, including the RCMP, can lead their own major reform. And we've given it to government before and they haven't done it. Mm. So what this report has done is said there's a little bit of a new civilian advisory board at the federal level that is there to act almost like local police services boards do for regular municipal policing services to be the drivers of change. And this report is saying... In the next couple of years, we want to see reform to the RCMP Act where this advisory board gets amped up and turned into a proper board of management, which would be something much more like police services boards where they are the prime movers in setting out the policies and procedures and making sure that command levels of the police organization are doing the right thing. That'll undercut the minister a little bit, make the minister a little bit less important in the lives of the RCMP, That can only be a good thing. 
Uh, RCMP obviously been um, uh, criticized heavily of late. Uh, and again, in all of these situations, you hear systemic change is needed. Uh, have to rethink uh, rethink things. Uh, can't investigate yourself, as you were saying uh, earlier. Are you confident with the details of this report that we may actually move forward here? I think that given that the, just the tragedy that has been the result of lack of action, 22 mm. dead massacred in Nova Scotia, um, others killed in New Brunswick not that long ago within the decade, uh, mm. the complete collapse of the policing system under the weight of the Freedom Convoy, of which the RCMP was only a part. We've all now seen the consequences of not acting on these recommendations. These recommendations are not rocket science. They've been raised for other police organizations beyond the RCMP. In a way, the RCMP has been the laggard in community safety and well-being policing. We've had some advances in places like Edmonton, Alberta, Peel in Ontario, where the police are becoming integrated with other actors that do things like deal with domestic violence problems before they become inflamed deal with drug addiction problems before they come become criminal issues. So the RCMP has been way behind. What we have in this report is a program to turn the RCMP into the leader rather than the laggard in community safety and well-being policing. And it starts with revamping training. It starts with a different relationship with the federal, provincial, and municipal governments. It's a comprehensive strategy. You can't cherry pick it. You've got to do the whole thing. You bring up a valid point, Michael. They should be the gold standard. Uh, they should be setting the uh, the trend for everybody else. Many uh, much has been, and you you alluded to this earlier. This being a rural area, not an urban area, um, and, and you know, obviously, votes, politics, whatever. But as far as the operation of the service itself, is it at a disadvantage because it is in a rural area? It, would this have happened in a more uh, urban setting? Uh, are they at a disadvantage? advantage because of geography? Well, the geography disadvantage has to do with how many functions that the RCMP fills across such wide geography. So think about an organization with a $5 billion a year budget with 20,000 sworn police members and about 10,000 civilian members performing contracted local community crime prevention, contracted provincial policing, and federal policing activities that include things like international organized crime, investigations into foreign interference in our electoral process. This is a huge range of functions. How do you make sure that you've got the right distribution of people across the entirety of the country to properly execute at the local level? You just can't do it. It's too difficult. So what you have to do with the RCMP, and that's what this report is calling for, is figure out where the RCMP is doing a great job with local contracted community policing, keep it in those areas, and then ask a question as to where it might be better for municipalities and even provinces for that matter to establish their own policing services. And don't sort of start with paper and design it. Start from the ground up and figure out where it's going well and where the RCMP should shed functions so that you end up with a program that's supported by what you've actually got in terms of active membership. Uh, we're talking a lot about the free, uh, future here, Michael. Uh, what about today? Do Nova Scotians feel safe now? If, this, if an incident like this was to happen now, would it be handled differently, do you think? 
One thing that does concern me is that the report says that in the uh, just about three years since the massacre, very little has been done by the RCMP while waiting for this report. And there's no good reason for that. There should have been already a systemic review, changes made on the ground. So I think that although uh, not a lot of these changes have been made, just the fact that it's happened, we've had this massacre the RCMP would snap out of it a little bit earlier and communicate better with the public and with neighboring police organizations. But now that the report is out, they've really got to hustle to implement some of the smaller reforms immediately while waiting for the bigger things. In other words, don't wait for the top-down reform. Start right away on the ground with mm. your local practices. Michael Campo with us, Associate Professor, Faculty of Social Sciences, Criminology, uh, University of Ottawa, on the report coming out of Nova Scotia and what they need to do to stop it from ever happening again. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? Uh, very cool. I've been meaning to ask you about this story. And, of course, when we get on, we start talking about other stuff. And I never, and it just never seemed to remember to ask you the sports questions that you're the expert in. Hmm. However, uh, I understand. Uh, Ovechkin uh, moving in on Gretzky's record. Uh, Going to be a lot of, of talk about this. Uh, interesting article in the Globe and Mail. The National Hockey League has a war crimes problem. Uh, many are upset that uh, Ovechkin and his ties to Putin and Russia. Uh, how are they going to square this circle when it comes time to break that record? Boy, it's a tough one. Uh, so the, the, the story, for those who don't know, and... Um, it's possible that a lot of people don't know because honestly, Scott, I've been really surprised at how little – there have been people who have written and talked about this, but how little has been written and talked about this. That yeah. If you go on right now, I'm looking at this very minute at Alexander Ovechkin official, his Instagram page, his his portrait, his home page photo is him standing, smiling, shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And, you know, like – okay, so – I am a firm believer that we should have free expression, that you should be allowed to say what you want to say. And if you like what they say, you can like what you say. If someone says, if you don't, you don't. Just because someone says something, we don't all have to agree with it. We don't have to disagree with it. I would much rather have the people people being able to express themselves than sort of the the modern thing where if someone says something that you disagree with, they must be shut down, they must be gotten rid of, they must be excised from civilization. I, I hate that stuff. Yeah. So this, you know, Vladimir, uh, uh, Alexander Ovechkin, it's his choice what he wants to do with this. But it seems odd to me that so little criticism, and, and what, what I just said doesn't exclude criticism. It doesn't mean you can't criticize someone. Yeah. And, you know, the, the argument is, well, you know, if he takes this picture down, it'll put his family at risk in Russia. I'm reasonably sure that Alexander Ovechkin, by this point, if he had wanted to, could have got his family over to the States. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one because we have people writing gallons of ink about a player who decides that he doesn't want to wear a pride shirt for warm-ups – and yet, yeah, you know, that's, and that's my point. And then on this side, we've got someone who is hanging out with a war criminal. In the grand scheme of things, which one is worse? A different argument. People will make different arguments. I, I would suggest that someone who, because of 
you know, firmly held religious views who simply doesn't choose to wear a shirt is less than someone who has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in an unnecessary war. But that's just me. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at the Instagram page of Ovechkin right now. Um, it would be neat to see him pictured to uh, other Putins to see if he's as tall as he is compared to the other ones, because there seems to be very uh, many variations well, of Putin okay. and doubles and stuff. But why? Why? Like again, um, you know, it's one thing to say you're a supporter, whatever, but it's another thing that bam, there's the picture of uh, Ovechkin given the peace symbol next to Putin. I mean, uh, how come we're not talking about it more? Well, it's a very good question. I, I don't know if it's because it's uncomfortable. I don't know if it's because there's nothing we can do about it because he has been asked about it. There were some people who said, you know, when he came to Canada, when he came to Toronto earlier this year, that they should not allow him across the border because he's con consorting with war criminals. Again, um, you know, Scott, I, I tend to lean more towards say what you want to, you know, express yourself how you want to express yourself as long as it's not yelling fire in a crowded theater. But that doesn't exclude the possibility of criticism or of, you know, there were things people could have done. I was surprised that almost nobody in almost any rink, there's been a few, but in most rinks, there hasn't even been an outcry from fans. Which I that thought. was my that was my next question. How are fans reacting to this? Are they are they are they thinking differently now? Is there going to be a little blowback when he does hit that record? Well, uh, see, I suspect that they will do everything they possibly can. Do you do you think? Let's let's say, for example, that he sets this record in Washington in his home rink. He gets the he finally scores the goal that passes Gretzky in Washington. Do you think that the Security people there will allow one person to hold up a Ukrainian flag or a sign or anything else that would be critical of that moment? Not a chance. Not you a know, chance. I, you bring up another valid point. It's Washington. Like, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's just it's it's it just seems Again, I'm surprised we're talking about this only now. Well, and here's the other thing. So uh, again, let's use the example and, and not because they are apples and apples, but because they have happened at a similar time. The, the, the players who have decided not to wear the pride warm-up jerseys and they have basically gone to every single rink since and had to answer questions about that. Yeah. And so they made a choice. That was their choice. They were permitted to make that choice. There is the results of that choice that they are facing. They are now being asked this question again and again and again, and they're being criticized. Alex Ovechkin has been asked a few times this year about this. I think your point is fair, though. Why is he not being asked about this every single place he goes? We've just sort of seen it dropped as if, oh, well, we mentioned it, and now let's just get on with the good celebrations. Because he's, he's a superstar. Well, but so are some of the other guys. But we mm -hmm. seem to, as I say, and, and you know, I get that everyone's going to have a different opinion on this. But to me, buddying up with someone who has led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people for something that didn't have to happen is worse than the other things. And yet the mm -hmm. other things seem to be getting a lot more blowback.
Good point. Uh, Scott Radley coming up after the Scott Radley, or sorry, after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show. And you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say on the subject of tech, artificial intelligence, robots, drones, why spend millions on new manned F-35 fighters? I say recruit the best video game players, put them in uniform, give them the best drones to fly and secure our borders from hostile aircraft. (laughs) 